You are hearing voices. So the most important thing is what is being said or the people that maybe you never heard the voice of. Madre Teresa. Love begins at home. I wonder why. Radio dial. Signals from the sky. And it is not how much we do. From NPR, this is Hearing Voices with Radio Dial. But how much love we put into what we do. Perceptions on reception across the radio spectrum. There's just a whole litany of different natural radio sounds to record. Radio stories about radio. It's time to turn up and tune in your radio dial. You're hearing voices. Don't worry, there's nothing wrong with your signal. It's just our new series, Hearing Voices, the best of public radio. This week's show is Radio Dial, Signals from the Sky. An hour of radio about radio. We found this gem on the shortwave music blog. These are dueling transmitters from Spanish ham radio operators, slow Morse code, and the voice of the Islamic Republic of Iran. From NPR, you are hearing voices supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Barrett Golding. First stop on your radio dial, a sound portrait of Uruguay's Radio Urbana by producer Jake Warga. Urbana 92.5 Hi, my name is Carolina Moreira. I work in Urbana. My job is as a presenter. Urbana. The sounds that you hear in this piece have the reverberation. They have like the echo of the night. One of the concepts, or one of the ideas of the radio is that it is a radio that you could hear here in Uruguay or anywhere in the world. Maybe New York symbolizes that cosmopolitanism. It was interesting that a radio station that has to do with cosmopolitanism uh, takes themes that are that are real, that are real in the world. They're real here, they're real in, in New York. A theme that cannot be ignored. Drugs. I don't know why they, they ended up talking with a drug dealer. I don't want to ask why. On radio station 92.5. This piece is also thought for the night. What it features are different types of drums, of Uruguayan drums, typical Uruguayan candombe drums. Uh, first you'll hear to the chico drum, which is the more um, high-pitched one. Now you're hearing a mixture of piano and repique over a French electronic bass. The mission is to... to keep the Uruguayan audience, I mean, up to date with the world, basically. It's just to capture the, the kind of music that wouldn't normally come to Uruguay. It's not alternative music. It's music that maybe in Europe or in the States is quite mainstream. And what we're trying to say is, look, we can do this in Uruguay. You can hear this radio in Uruguay, but you also can hear it in the States or in France or anywhere. And it is Uruguayan. It's pure Uruguayan brains. <laughs> Nelson Mandela. Democracy. Democracy. Democracy and 
These mixes are like a totally different concept. To form an artistic piece with people from the arts, people from politics. Poloster. You don't have to write the, write the stories yourself, she said. Get people to sit down and write their own stories. They could send them in to you and then you could read the best ones on the radio. It's on the radio. Urbana. So the most important thing is what is being said or the person which is being said, people that maybe you never heard the voice of. Madre Teresa. Love begins at home. I wonder why. At home. And it is not how much we do. Why. But how much love we put into what we do. Urbana. Love, love. Confirmó que, luego de romper sus lazos matrimoniales, el afeminado cantautor... ¡Ay, perdón! El afamado cantautor grabará para la firma de su... Wow, presidos cuenta máxima. Del lado el pitcher, ahí se prepara lanza, le tira un batazo largo por el perfil. Adiós, Lolita de mi vida. Radio Reloj, la emisora cubana que marcha junto al tiempo. Radio Reloj de la hora, 11 y 24 en el Vedado. 9.25 minutos en Hongolosongo. 3.22 minutos en Manicaragua. That a cappella group imitating a radio dial was a tape from a friend of mine recorded off the radio in South America. If anyone knows who the band is, Write us. We're radio at hearingvoices.com. That's the tone, 15 hours, 56 minutes, coordinated universal time. Radio people are obsessive about telling you the time. One government station, WWV, broadcasts only time. Now, I heard a major commercial network is about to buy that station and spiff up its image. They'll call it WWV, the Tech. WWV, all the time, all the time. Same time, same station, every time. WWV. One, two, three, four... Every second counts at WWV. For a good time, call 555-4-WWV. WWV, for the time of your life. We'll be back with the time on WWV in just a minute. But first, here's another minute. studio. Now we are not on air because the light is not on. Okay, my name is Gaitan Natshatu. I am the head of uh, Gondar Education Media Center here in Ethiopia, northern part of Ethiopia in Amhara region. You know, as, as you see, it, this all materials are analog materials. We are not, uh, not yet in the digital world or in the digital uh, uh, system. We are, we are education radio stations. We use different radio formats. Particularly, radio drama is one of the best ones. This is uh, the uh, sound uh, effect corner. It has got different sounds. Just like that, and, and shoes. So let me try to make uh, someone just walking. Uh, culture or tradition is a good thing. But it has got uh, certain uh, practices which are bad. 
one of the practices, Arpu traditional practice, is tattooing. Uh, you see, uh, the peoples use uh, this tattooing for beautification. In the past, tattooing was done using materials which were not clean or sterilized. People used to believe that tattooing helped to prevent us from having goiter, and tattooing was also considered as a sign of beauty. Uh, those practitioners are using the needles uh, or materials which are untidy, so it can transmit uh, uh, HIV, AIDS, and other uh, diseases. And we, we made a radio program on this tattooing. Uh, they just uh, impersonate the, the characters, the radio characters. So they, they can talk just like, like the radio characters. They decided uh, to stop the tattooing. And we broadcast these uh, radio programs to schools. We tell uh, with the children about HIV AIDS how they just protect themselves from HIV AIDS to avoid stigma to their friends and to the families and uh, how to teach or how to disseminate the uh, information on HIV AIDS to the community. I like radio because the pictures are better. Radio Gondar in Ethiopia. Another station sound portrait by Hearing Voices producer Jake Wargo. WWV The Tick was produced by Douglas Grant. The voice is John Doyle, a former WWV announcer. You're hearing voices. This week, it's radio dial, signals from the sky. And this music radio mix is by Mike Weisskopf, the guy who runs the blog Shortwave Music. send our signals out into space. But space also sends us radio waves. The sun broadcasts 24-7. You can even hear the northern lights if you have the right gear. And Steve McGreevy has a van full. These are Steve's natural radio recordings with music by Racket Ship. There's just a whole litany of different natural radio sounds to record. Hisslers and growlers and howlers and tweaks. Particles from the sun are hitting Earth's magnetic field and generating these noises probably several thousand miles out in space. It's beautiful. It's, it's primordial. It's Mother Earth singing.
space weather. And it's wild. Oh, listen to this. Oh, this is beautiful. Wow. It's Mother Earth singing. Is the level okay and everything? Chesty Morgan's Forbidden Love. I've been um, thinking. Uh, I've been thinking about why this show is not quite as successful as we had originally imagined. And uh, several things spring to mind. One, it's not on the air anywhere. 
to it doesn't even have a name and three we only work on it about an hour every other month if you average it out so I can see that these are problems and um, I don't have an immediate solution to those problems but I do have an idea which is that we need an overreaching concept uh, I've seen that this works in other areas just like evil empire and that was like an overreaching concept and I, I thought of several one was iceberg and one was rosebud obviously but uh, um, the, the thing is those are sort of long I mean they're two syllables and it seemed to me that a concept should be uh, as short and simple as it well in other words it should be just one syllable which is as short as it could get. And the one that I thought of was, uh, I'll, I'll just throw this out, in quotation marks, what? Um, another way to put that would be, quote, huh? Um, in French, if this is any help, it's quoi? Um, in Latin, it's Quid in Zulu is anamarapia. Uh, so any way that you want to think of it, I, I I thought I would just throw that out and open up the floor for discussion. That piece comes to us from some rogue NPR commentators who tried to start a new series which turned into a podcast called Chesty Morgan's Forbidden Love. You can find it at our site, hearingvoices.com. And the Android sisters did Ray D.O., a ZBS production. You've been listening to radio stories about radio. Coming up, stories about radio stories. That's in a minute when Hearing Voices returns with Radio Dial. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. You are Hearing Voices, and this is Radio Dial Signals from the Sky. Here's some more dueling transmitters from the shortwave music blog. Nor the Maakathites, but the Geshurites and the Maakathites dwell amongst the Israelites until this day. It's Radio Bulgaria versus the religious station, Family Radio International. Sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. Moses came to the tribe of children of Reuben, inheritance according to And here I am, Gertrude Gnu, for Gary Gnu News. This cassette tape was found in a Union, New Jersey thrift store. It comes to us from the professor at audiokitchen.net. Because the president is with us for an, a short interview. And let's let him welcome himself. 
Welcome, everybody. Thank you, President. Okay, and now we would like to ask you some questions. Would that be okay? Yeah. Okay, first question. How do you feel about the Iranians taking the hostages five years ago? Well, it was quite an unbearable position to be in. Of course, it was... It's not easy to tell a good radio story. Potential with the... You need to know what to leave in and what to cut out. The political business. So it's best to have a good editor, like we have at Hearing Voices. His name's Larry Massett. Please meet Douglas Fleischert, artist, inventor, and co-founder of Language Removal Services. What, what is Language Removal Services? Um... Language removal services is is uh, it's it's language removal services is, is um, um, okay. Wait a minute. What is Doug trying to say, and why is he talking funny? We are the world's um, leading provider of language removal services. Um, As a matter of fact, he isn't talking funny. We all talk this way with ums and ahs and static of all kinds. You don't hear it much on radio or TV because somebody, some editor like me, has come along and cleaned up the tape. Here is Doug Fleischert with the static removed. We are the world's leading provider of language removal services. There are many uses for the service. Right. And what they do is the opposite of what I just did. I took out the static. They take out the language. Uh, uh, um, what's left are the breaths and lip smacks um, and ums and ahs, all the stuff we're not supposed to listen to. Doug calls this a static language portrait. Here, for instance, is Marlena Dietrich. Um, Now here's Sylvester Stallone. Note the jungle sounds in the background. Notice, too, that in some odd way you can still recognize Stallone or Dietrich as though taking away the words leaves behind a distillation, a core of the speaker. These static language portraits are really frozen portraits of a person's speaking habits, and they outline a spirit or soul that underlies that language. What Maya Angelou. We're not interested really in taking away the language as much as substituting a more fundamental and, and sort of essential language, which is really a language based on the body, on, on breath and suck and hum. After a while, after you get over the fun of recognizing your favorite celebrity, oh, that's Marilyn Monroe, hey, Miles Davis, you may find yourself listening to these portraits almost as music. Sometimes they really are music, here is what language removal does to the late 19th century opera singer Adelina Patti. Here I suspect they've done something a little more complex than just cut out the voice. Fleischert calls this an ecstatic portrait, and he's a little cagey about the technique. How is it done? I don't know that I, I uh, would feel comfortable telling you that because it is a proprietary sort of uh, method, and you know it's it's a it's a doggy dog world. The world of language removal, that is. In any case, if you're interested, you can visit their website, languageremoval.com, and check out their new CDs and their latest projects. You'll also find that you can hire them to remove your language.
Our clients range from the stars to very ordinary people. And there are many uses for the service, which range from self-awareness to vanity to a, a sort of new application that we're working on developing, which has to do with identification and security purposes. But we don't turn anyone away. We will do what we can. I should warn you, though. Fleischit says sometimes removing a person's language to expose their essence will expose instead a lack of essence. We have performed a language removal on a personality and come up with absolutely nothing. One is led to the conclusion that certain people don't have a soul. The choice is yours. The website again, languageremoval.com. A lot of time, people don't have anything to say. And yet there's another key. You go ahead. I'm sorry. Now, what were we talking about? People don't have anything to say. And yet there's another key. I get confused because we do these so many different ways. It irritates and therefore gets in your head and stays there. Now, what were we talking about? More than anything, it's just that internal rhythm and public boredom level. You didn't want to leave the room. That's right, yeah. something reality about this done right now. You heard some more of Gary and Gertrude Gnu with the Gnu's. Before that, everyone's favorite morning man over music by Jean Jacket Shotgun. And this is what's left of an opera once language removal services takes out the words. This is Radio Dial, and we're having our Hearing Voices producers tell you stories about telling stories. Scott Carrier is always saying our job is to accurately report what we see, what we find, and what we hear. More than issues or social import, the story should really be just our best recollection of what happened. There are a lot of bad ways to wake up, but surely one of the worst is by looking into the floodlight from a police car. I was in a field, some farmer's field next to a power plant just outside Lawrence, Kansas. I was sleeping there next to my car before driving into Kansas City in the morning. 
The policeman somehow saw my car from the road and they pulled up right in front of it and I didn't even wake up. I was lying on the ground on the passenger side of the car and when I did wake up, one of the policemen was in the front seat, I guess looking for drugs, and the other was 40 feet away in the hayfield. And I don't know why he was out there unless he had his gun pulled, covering his partner. He said I scared him when I woke up so suddenly. I sat straight up, boom, awake, and I bet he nearly shot me dead. They wanted to know what I was doing sleeping in the field, and I told them that I didn't like motels, which was only partly true. So I decided to tell them that I was born here, in Lawrence, but that I don't live here anymore, which was completely true, but somehow didn't achieve the level of meaning I hoped it would. They asked me what I was going to do in Kansas City, and I said I was going to interview the mayor at 11 in the morning. I told them I was a producer for a radio program. I told them the name of the program and the name of the host, and they'd heard of him. You'd know who he is as well if I were to say his name but I've decided not to say his name and call him the friendly man instead because this is his persona. I told the policeman that every weekday morning the friendly man has a five-minute feed on one of the networks and 12 million people listen. His stories are, as a rule, upbeat and positive. Their general theme is people taking responsibility for their lives, their community, their country. The friendly man always has good news, and the good news is always that America just keeps getting better and better. Both policemen said they'd heard of the program and that they liked the friendly man, and so they decided they liked me as well, and it was okay to sleep in the field. Sorry to have bothered you. I was hired by one of the friendly man's executive producers. Her job was to wrangle and corral radio producers like myself from around the country into conducting interviews and writing scripts for stories that had been found by her flock of computer researchers, also from around the country. Some people are surprised to hear that the friendly man doesn't actually produce the stories he tells, but in reality, he just doesn't have the time, what with the television show now and the specials and so on. It's not that he doesn't want to write his stories, not that he can't. It's just that he's really busy now being the friendly man, and he shouldn't expect him to come up with all of his own material. The way it works is that the friendly man is in New York with maybe a couple of editors and an engineer, and his executive producer is in San Francisco with fax machines and email, and the researchers are all over the place looking for story ideas through computer searches. When the researcher finds what looks like an appropriate story, he calls the people in the story on the phone and talks to them for a while. Then he writes out a story synopsis, which is sent to the friendly man for approval. Once approved, the story goes to a producer, and the producer is in charge of conducting basically the same interviews all over again, on tape this time, and then editing the tape and writing the script, which is reviewed by the executive producer in San Francisco and sent to the friendly man in New York City so he can read it on the air. The first story I produced for the friendly man was in Tucson, Arizona. It was about some people in Tucson who were helping to make America a better place. It doesn't really matter what the story was about. What matters is that I had to do all the interviews over the phone. There wasn't enough money to send me to Tucson. So I found an audio engineer in Tucson and had him go to the locations and hold a microphone up to the subjects while I talked to them on the phone. Then he sent me the tape, which I edited, and then wrote the script without ever meeting the people I was writing about or the person I was writing for. When I made a suggestion for changing the story, a change that I thought would make it better, the executive producer said that she would try not to get upset with me because this was my first story and maybe I didn't understand my role. The story had been approved as written in the synopsis. There were to be no changes, no additional narratives or discoveries. I was but the writer-producer, one of many cogs in the wheel. I apologized and did the story as ordered. After this first story, I asked the executive producer if I could go on the road, drive around and collect interviews, actually meet the people and see what they were doing, and then come back and produce the stories. She gave me four stories at a distance of 3,000 miles, 
They'd pay the mileage, but would give me nothing up front. The food and lodging were to be my expenses, and so I was sleeping out. It was the first week of July, and so warm at night you could sleep on the grass without a bag or a blanket. At 11 a.m. on the morning after the incident with the police, I was standing in the mayor's office on the top floor of the Kansas City, Missouri Municipal Building. It's a tall building, built on one of the highest hills in the area, so looking out of the window, I could see most of the city, buildings and railroad tracks and the river, the Missouri River, making a big oxbow right through town. We sat at a long wooden table, a conference table in tall chairs, Mayor Emanuel Cleaver, also a Methodist minister, a black mayor in a black town, I'd come to ask him about his summertime midnight basketball program. The program, like all midnight basketball programs, was designed to reduce the crime rate by keeping juveniles off the street. And like with some of the other programs, the crime rate hadn't gotten any better, except for the time that the kids were actually playing basketball. Whenever there was a game going on, the crime rate in the neighborhood was lower the mayor's opponents were saying that the program was pork, that the $100,000 a year could be better spent somewhere else. I asked the mayor about this, and he was adamant, even passionate, about the value of teaching kids to play basketball or any team sport. He said that team sports teach kids the best values, that they learn to cooperate and play by the rules, they learn to problem-solve through cooperation, and by playing, they learn to love the game. And through the love of the game, they learn to love themselves and each other. He said that a few of the kids had gone to college on basketball scholarships, and this gave hope to everybody in the community, a community where hope was like a foreign language, and that alone was worth it, even a bargain at $100,000. He said, you go to the games. It's mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers. You'll see the whole community there. He was right. Over on the east side, the poor side of town, there were games going on in a community center, and the place was packed, and the games were good, little eight- and nine-year-olds passing the ball and making plays and running hard the whole game. They loved the game. I interviewed coaches, kids, and parents, and everything was going fine. Things really were getting better and better in America. But then, just before I left, I was talking to a father about his son and somebody, I think probably a little kid, took my three rechargeable batteries and a digital audio tape with the mayor's interview on it out of my bag and out of the building, and they were gone. The batteries were worth $250 and could be replaced, but the interview with the mayor was lost for good. Some little kid looked in my bag, and these things were like eggs in a basket. Anyone older would have just taken the bag. I walked around the neighborhood for a while, trying to figure out what to do. The next day was a Saturday, and I doubted the mayor would be in his office, which would mean that I'd have to wait until Monday. But I had appointments for interviews Monday morning for another story in St. Louis, 300 miles to the east. And then there was the fact that I'd been robbed while doing a story about a program that reduces juvenile crime. The story, as it was written by the researcher in the synopsis, was all about how black people were improving their lives and making things better by playing basketball. But the reality of the situation, at least the way I saw it, was that these people were poor, that they'd been poor for a long time, and that they were probably going to stay poor for a long time. So I called the executive producer and left her a message saying that maybe she should consider scrapping the basketball story and that I was going on to St. Louis and would call her from there. The story in St. Louis was also about poor black people. Only in St. Louis, it was about old poor black people. Old poor black people who lived in a nursing home and had started their own private economy, wherein they'd get paid for helping each other out by washing clothes or cooking meals or even reading books and stories out loud at bedtime but they didn't get paid in real money. They got paid in what they called time dollars, which could only be exchanged between themselves or cashed in at a special community store for food, clothing, and other necessary items. My first interview was with a woman who'd set everything up. 
She was a well-educated, upper-middle-class white lady who worked for a large charitable organization as a local manager of its programs. This woman was very nervous, and I couldn't tell if it was because she was just nervous being interviewed, or if she was nervous being surrounded by poor black people, or if she was just nervous by nature. I talked to her for a while, and then she introduced me to some women who actually participated in the Time Dollar program, and they told me that they do things like call up old people around town and ask them if they feel okay, if they're sick or something, or they clean and dry a neighbor's clothes before he goes into the hospital, or cook for someone who has bad asthma. And then they could use the time dollars to buy stuff they needed. They were friendly ladies, and it was just like it said in the synopsis. Neighbors helping neighbors and getting paid to do it. So I asked them if we could go over and see the store, the place where they actually buy everything, and they sort of hemmed and hawed about it, said there was a key and they'd have to get it. And then we were talking about grandchildren, arthritis, the weather in Mississippi. I was wondering if maybe they didn't really want to go to the store. So I asked again, and they said it was a couple of blocks away and it was raining so hard. I was a little worried at this point because the store was in the synopsis, and so there had to be some tape of the store in the story. And so I explained my predicament to the women and begged them as best I could if we could go there. We borrowed some umbrellas and walked over to the building that housed the store. It was a one-story warehouse, brick and concrete, a few windows. Inside, we went down a hallway that separated two large rooms, each packed with desks and office people, stacks of paper, stacks of folders, desk fans, lots of desk lights, people typing on real typewriters, old adding machines. It was very suspicious. One side looked like the Bulgarian Foreign Trade Department, the other side like the Lithuanian Shipping Commission. Down at the far, dark end of the hall was a large metal cabinet with two full-length doors closed by a padlock. One of the ladies opened the lock, and inside were four shelves. The top held bottles of fabric softener. The next was full of baby wipes. Another had some paper plates and plastic silverware, and the bottom was full of bathroom deodorizer. That was it. That was the store. I'd imagined something between a 7-Eleven and a thrift store, and I didn't understand. I didn't understand how any of this was working. I stood there and looked at the cabinet, and the story disintegrated into baby wipes and picnic forks. I thanked the ladies and left the building and called the executive producer. I didn't want to tell her about the baby wipes and the fabric softener. There was no use in telling her that something was wrong, that maybe the whole story was a sham. But I did want to ask her if it would be okay if I left the store out of the story, that maybe the story should be that these people just like helping each other and that the time-money thing wasn't so important. But she never let me get to it. She was upset, very upset, about the message I left on her machine Friday night. It had ruined her whole weekend. She was distraught and nearly hysterical. Everyone was distraught and nearly hysterical, and it was my fault. My fault to have taken my eyes off the equipment, my fault to have been robbed, my fault to have left town without completing the story assignment. She said that I'd led her to believe that I was a professional, but no professional would ever behave in such a manner. She said this twice, the subtext being that the friendly man can only use professional producers, and that therefore I was fired, unless maybe I went back to Kansas City to re-interview the mayor. My job was to do what I was told, just as their job was to do what they were told, just as the friendly man's job was to do what he was told. Because the audience, the 12 million listeners, had something they wanted to be told, that America is a good place with decent people, never mind the screaming coming from the basement. So I got in my car and drove 300 miles west to Kansas City. I could have told them to go f*** themselves, but I didn't. I went back because I didn't want to be fired by the friendly man. I've been fired by other, less well-known friendly men, and it's always like being branded, scorned as the one who ran. I was tired of that, tired of being broke and not having any work. My wife, my family, they were tired of it too. I decided that I wanted to be a professional, I wanted to be a team player. 
I wanted to take responsibility for my life, my community, and my country. I wanted to get ahead and go someplace with my career and be happy. I drove back to Kansas City and got in late at night. I drove through the big buildings downtown, the streets lit yellow and vacant. I drove through the poor neighborhoods, the streets lit yellow and vacant. I drove along the parkways, past fountains and parks, and I drove past my grandmother's house and down to the country club plaza where I slept without a bag or a blanket on the lawn, on the long esplanade in front of the Nelson Art Museum. If I was to be bothered by the police, I would tell them that I am a radio producer working for the friendly man and that I have a meeting with the mayor in the morning. Scott Carrier, The Friendly Man, produced by This American Life, thislife.org. There's links to all the producers you heard in this hour at hearingvoices.com. I'm Barrett Golden. We'll end the hour with these sounds Scott recorded off his shortwave radio. supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is HearingVoices.com.